Well, good morning, MCC. Hope you guys are doing good. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab that out and go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today as we continue in this series, Arrhythmia. If you're like, what is Arrhythmia? You maybe missed last week. We, we kind of introed this new series, which I would definitely say go back and check this out. And again, it's not so much of a new series as us continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As we go through this Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus kind of shift gears and he gets into these matters of the heart, these things that cause our hearts, that if they've really been sold over to him, to beat irregularly than how his heart beats. And we started last week talking about the very thing that Jesus talks about first as kind of this enemy of our heart that causes it to be irregularly. And it's this thing called anger. Here's what he had to say about it. It's Matthew chapter five. We're gonna start in verse 21. He says, you have heard it said long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus, as we come to these words that you spoke over 2,000 years ago on a hillside in Galilee, we know, God, that they are just as more important for us right here as we sit in McDonough, Georgia, because everyone in this in the room, we have moments of anger. Every one of us in the room have probably some relationships in our lives where we need reconciliation. And as we, last week, maybe dive into and figure out what you're actually saying here and and why you're saying this and why you're saying that, that our hearts need to be given over to you and we need to beat in your rhythm, I pray today, Jesus, that you would use your word again to let us not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. You didn't preach this sermon so that people would have knowledge. You preached this sermon so that lives would be changed. And I pray, Jesus, that I can do the same thing today by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. So last week, we began unpacking this passage, and we talked about anger and how anger is something that wells up inside of us most often when when things don't go our way. We made the point last week as well that there is a type of righteous anger, that we see moments where Jesus gets angry, where God gets angry, where Paul says, hey, in your anger, do not sin. We're going to get into that passage a little bit here. But what I want to do today, and this is kind of where we left last week, is, is really dive into the practical side of it. So today is going to be less learning a bunch of new Greek words and everything else, as much as going, okay... Anger is an emotion. It's a real emotion. We can't deny that that's a real emotion that happens. And the reality is, anger is something that God gives us. It's actually a good thing. The same way that you have sensory receptors on your hands, that if you were to touch a hot stove, it would tell you to move your hand. Anger, in the same way, is something that tells us to move, tells us to do something. However, a lot of times, we have a hard time processing, maybe doing the right thing when that anger comes up. Because it's an emotion that's not going anywhere. And that's why Jesus hits it, number one. And anger, like all emotions, they have to be processed. Most of the hurt, the pain, and the turmoil that we see in life is directly because of our emotions that we go through and that we experience not being processed the right way. And what we see here is that Jesus is going to offer a way to process through these things, but at the end of the day, we're trying to surrender to his life. 
And Jesus processes through things with clarity, with character, and with control. And anger is something that's very hard to navigate in those three categories. With clarity. Because we see red. We get angry. All we see is the moment, the situation. We don't see what that person's character is like. We just see what they did to us right now. With control. Anger is one of the main things. You know, when somebody blows off or they flip the tables off or they burn their work down. Well, they lost control. And then the character side is, well, when we do see what they do, we now see who they really were. Or at least we make up a mind. So today, before we dive into what anger leads to, I want us to understand this really key truth about our emotional and mental health in regards to the gospel. It's this. Unprocessed emotions is the soil that sin grows in. Your unprocessed emotions, whether it be anger, shame, fear, doubt, guilt, loneliness, whatever, your unprocessed emotions, your attempt to just navigate whatever one it is, is the soil. Again, it's not the sin, but it is 100% the sin or the soil that that sin will grow in. Jesus told parables about soil. Certain things grow out of certain soil. It's just a principle. And what I want to do today is to walk us through the two places, the two paths that anger can lead us down. Depending on how you process it, anger will either lead you to a place of forgiveness or bitterness. Write that down if you're a note taker person. Anger will take you one or two places. Either you're going to take you to bitterness or to forgiveness. And we're going to walk through a little bit of both of those things today. I'm going to do a little bit of sharing my own personal story. Uh, It's going to be essentially my field notes to forgiveness for my own relationship with my father. Because I experienced both sides of that coin. A forgiveness and a bitterness. Now, maybe we don't talk about, you know, we've got really good about masking our emotions. And we got really good about redefining our emotions in our society. Most Christians would never say I'm angry. We say I'm frustrated or I'm I'm not feeling that or or whatever. We we make up a hundred different things to really, what we're really saying is I'm angry. But we we define it different ways. You ask any man when he's not happy, most of the time, most guys are going to say, I'm just frustrated. And it could be a thousand different things, but we label it as that. Anger is kind of one of those things too. And because anger leads to bitterness, and we don't really have a great definition for bitterness, I want to take us to this passage in Scripture where I think Jesus helps us understand what this is as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, this is what he says. Hopefully this will help you get a a better understanding of what that path of bitterness looks like and how dangerous it is. He says this, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. He's trying to help a church. He's trying to help a people just like us. Applies to our everyday real life. He says, strive for peace with everyone. (laughs) You guys don't think that's funny, do you? You don't at all. You think it's hard. Like, it is hard. Strive for peace with everyone. Like, that's in Scripture. That's that's not on Facebook on those little posts. Strive for peace with everyone. There is not some long-haired, bearded, hippie in a tie-dye shirt who wrote this. This is the Holy Spirit. This is our God said this, strive for peace with everyone. And everyone, again, I could go and study the Greek here, but I I can tell you, you could do all the studying you want on everyone. And it's going to mean everyone, no matter how you shake it, everyone. It says strive strive for peace with everyone. And what's even more fascinating, if you know the context of Hebrews, he is writing this to a people who are being oppressed and abused by people who were taking advantage of these believers here because of their faith. And he goes to them. 
Not in this, you know, big happy-go-lucky hippie commune. Hey, live at peace with everyone. Well, it's really easy. We're all sharing the bread. We're all drinking from the same cup. Yeah, we can live at peace with each other. He's saying, live at peace with everyone. Even the people who are putting you in jail. Even the people who are taking your rights away. Live at peace with everyone. And for the whole... And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace and strive for the holiness. This way of living our lives that show that we are representing a holy God, a just God, a right God. If we don't, he says, no one will see the Lord. And I love this next passage. And I never had fully understood what this week until I put it in the context of what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain. If you're underliner in your Bible, or underline those words, fails to obtain. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, if you have a very high view of God, you should read a verse like that and go, hold up, stop, wait a minute. I am to see to it that nobody else fails to obtain the grace of God. You've heard me put grace way up on a really high shelf for us. It's an amazing thing. But here you see God going, you need to see to it, and no one fails to obtain it. The cynic in me reads that and goes, God, how could I stop your grace? God, how, how could I defer or stiff arm somebody from experiencing your grace? I think there's something in there. See, Jesus is saying something critical, and I want to piece it together with what he says next, because he, I think, gives a tale of what he's after here. We say, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The next thought, the next part he says, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It's as if he's saying, you withholding grace for somebody, giving them grace and forgiveness for what they've done wrong to you, will also be the very same thing that may keep them from experiencing the grace of God. Now we should pause there because that's, that's heavy. That the grace that we withhold can potentially be something that causes somebody to never have an encounter with the grace of God. Because if they see in us, again, he says, you people who are striving to live, supposed to be, striving to live at peace with everyone, admonishing and living out the holiness of God, so everybody around you should know, we're Christians, we're followers of God, we're doing things a little bit differently. If they see you withholding grace from them, what they're seeing is the fruit of a bitter root. And he says that that bitter root can be something that causes people to not experience the grace of God. And you took a part in that. Now, that should cause us to wake up. That, that should cause us, again, not to go, okay, well, let's make sure this bitterness stuff happens, but, but, but to go, okay, if that's what anger can lead to, anger, anger can lead to bitterness, and bitterness can lead to people not experiencing the grace of God at our doing, then we've got to go, okay, man, if that's where that path leads, then I want to know, and I want to explore where the other path leads, the path of forgiveness, before we get on that path and how we've walked through that and how I've experienced that, I want to show you another warning that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He says this. He says, in your anger, do not sin, which is also him giving us the path to be angry. He says, if he said, do not sin, do not be angry, we would have gone, okay, so I'm not allowed to be angry. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And he had to put those really close together because he knows when you're angry, you're really close to sin. 
And it can go one way or the other, right? Again, Paul says anger puts us at this crossroads where we can either go to forgiveness or we can go to sin and bitterness. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. You guys remember when you were fighting with your, your, your siblings when you were growing up or you're chasing you know, people through the house? You know, you, and you little brothers or little sisters in the room, and I'm an older brother, so I, you know, I was usually the one chasing. Usually a little brother or a little sister, they're cowards. Um, and so, I'm just kidding, some of you. <laughs> they, they usually, like, you're doing something and they, like, smack you in the head or they do something with you, and then they know because you're much bigger, they can't win the fight. And so they take off, they run, and they run, 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 run. And so, as long as they can get in their door and close that door, and then get behind it and hit it on lock, they're okay, and they can wait it out. But we all know, us older, older siblings or, or other people who've been at the house or done the whatever, if we can get that foot, boom, just, just, stop, you can't get your, don't want to put your fingers in there, that's stupid, you're going you're gonna to end up walking around, like, how'd you lose your finger? Well, my brother, when I was three years old, you know, he, he, he cut it off in a door. Um, but you get that foot in there, they can't close it. And Jesus is inspiring Paul to that same reality that when we're bitter and we're unforgiving and we've got that anger and we let it lie, it's doing stuff. It's keeping a door open. And keeping that door open is essentially an invitation to say, Satan, come in and do whatever you want in the situation because I'm not willing to close the door through forgiveness. It's a dangerous spot to be. And that's why I think the words of Jesus' brother James are incredibly important here. Jesus' brother James, which I'm sure they have probably had some really unique interactions around their house. Um, I'm sure, um, I would love to ask James, Jesus' little brother, like, what was it like being angry at Jesus? Uh, <laughs> how'd that go? Um, what was it like, you know, when he gave you uh, a wedgie? Like, how strong was that? Um, he said this really hard thing that I think really goes into this place. And this is why I wanted to have this talk. I wanted you guys to get angered from a theological, from a deep-rooted place, as we talked about that this week. But at the end of the day, we got to walk through what do you do with it. James, Jesus' brother, in James 1.22, he said, don't fool yourself merely thinking that God just wants you to be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. He says, you, you, you don't really believe in him if it's just something you want to process. There's going to have to be something that's done. And to me, that, that's what I want to walk you through today. How, how do we do something with what God has done for us and the forgiveness he's given to us? And how do we do what's right with the anger that we have? Before we dive into that, I want to one more time process why, okay? Why we get angry. Why we get frustrated. We live in a day and age where it's really quick and what we really want to do is just blame everybody else. Well, I'm angry because they did this. I'm angry because they voted that way. I'm angry because I may have to put a mask back on. I'm angry because gas prices are going up. I'm angry because lumber costs $4,000 for two by four. I'm angry because of whatever it may be. I'm angry because of this. James, um, in typical Jesus family line um, fashion, he makes a point by first asking a question because he knows just like his older brother did that questions get to the heart of the matter he said what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from the desires that battle not around you they come from the battles that are within you to say i want it this way i want it that way the battles that are within you he says this now he's explaining okay okay that's where they're coming from and then he says this is why he says you desire but you don't have so you kill which is tying right back into what his older brother Jesus said. He said, when you get angry and you get mad, you get frustrated and everything else, you are killing people. You are saying, you're dead to me if you're not going to give to me what I want from you. You're dead. 
this is metaphorical killing and real killing. He says, you covet, which is wanting something that's not yours yet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. And this is the last sentence that's so key in understanding this. You do not have because you do not ask God. So we could really simply answer the question. You know, on a way to, like if your fourth grade kid asks you this. Why do people get angry? The incredibly simple answer to why do we get angry is simply because we don't get what we want. We just don't get what we want. But I think it's deeper than that. And I think it's a little bit deeper, and we see the deeper level that I think James is trying to take us to because he watched his brother go here, and he heard the sermon here, and and he understood these things when he said that last sentence, when he said, you quarrel and you fight, you do not have because you do not ask God. See, the deeper answer is we get angry because we are asking someone else to give us or to be for us something that only God can give us or be for us. That's why you're angry. It's not that you just didn't get what you want. It's because you place God-like expectations on that person to give you something that God only could give you. And that's my story. I'll start it in a sweaty garage in the middle of July with 10th grade version of me. It's moving day. Cleaning out the house that I grew up cleaning out the, the house and moving everything out of the house that, that had been my home for a really long time, that I had seen a little bit of everything, good, bad, ugly, and everything in between. And we're, we're unpacking this house. We're loading into a U-Haul truck, and me and my mom and my sister are getting ready to move to the other side of town because my parents are getting divorced. My dad had been in and out of the house during that period of time. My parents had been separated, but he's there that day kind of cleaning up the last bit of his stuff. And as we're getting ready to lock the house back up, I remember standing there in the garage with him. I'll never forget these words. He gives me a hug. He stands back, puts his hand on my shoulder. He looks me in my eyes and said, Trent, I want you to know that this isn't going to change anything between us. Everything in me wanted to believe that was true as a 14-year-old young man, that my dad was still going to be my dad, that he was going to still show up at the games, that he was still going to be a person who could help me navigate dating and girls and driving hard conversations, getting a first job, putting a resume together. Somebody to talk to, somebody to hang out with, somebody who could see who could eat more hot wings with. But it did change things. What happened from him showing up a couple of times at our new apartment became months without seeing him. And I watched my mom struggle through multiple jobs to be able to keep food on our table as we're, we're living in this two-bedroom apartment now trying to make ends meet, and she's doing a lot of it on her own. And this anger began to well up inside of me. As I watched this man who used to be my hero become in my eyes a coward, an abandoner. Someone who had rejected a woman who had rejected me and my sister. And anger and resentment grew and welled up in my heart because you let us down. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And I remember during those moments, struggling lashing out on my mom, wanting her to do both. Wanting, wanting mom, mom wh- why am I tucking her in at night? Why am I tucking my little sister in at night? Why aren't you here? Why am I having to ask every one of my buddies for rides home? Do you know how embarrassing it is to ask, uh, oh, this kid can't bring me home, this kid can't bring me home, this kid can't bring me home, and now I've got to go ask coach if he can take me home. Like everybody else is getting picked up. Where are you at? I put a crazy amount of unneeded pressure on her because her car was at the other job. I was angry. I didn't understand what was going on. 
I was angry at him. And I was angry at him because I was doing what that verse that I just read you said not to do. I was looking at an earthly father to be the heavenly father that I wasn't experiencing. I was expecting him to give me Abba Father things when he was just an earthly father. Now again, men in the room, you should be the primary example through which God shows his fathering love to and through. But at the end of the day, you're just a shadow of the substance that is him as a heavenly father. And with that void pulled out from under me, I was lost, desperate, in need of hope. Luckily, around that same time, I started going to church way more consistently. I had an amazing youth pastor who poured into my life and pointed me on the right track. And during that time, I began to figure out who God was as a loving heavenly father. And I began to realize that in the absence of an earthly father, him fully pulling away, that this God person who was up in heaven wasn't just this person who had to keep their rules and wasn't this person when I prayed to when I got in trouble or didn't study for an algebra test. This was actually a father. This was actually a dad. This was actually someone who I could go to, I could talk to, I could ask questions to, I could be uh, angry with and him be okay with it and still love me and embrace me all through. And that all of my life, as I began to look back on checkered past after fight with my family, after all the things things that had happened, that he had been there all along, writing stuff in and protecting me, and even in these very moments as a high school student, had aligned me with people who would point me to his love. And through that, pointing to his love, I felt a call to ministry be placed on my life. And I pursued that. I went into college, Atlanta Christian College, pursued ministry, was doing that there, was playing baseball, doing ministry. And during this course of time, the only things I had really heard about my dad, who missed senior night of baseball game, missed graduation ceremonies, And it wasn't that he was out of town on some work trip or something like that, that he was strung out on narcotics. The only thing I had heard about him, and it came from my mom, as she, and (laughs) my family is half Italian, and uh, one of the reasons my house was a really fiery place to grow up in was because um, both of my parents really knew how to get angry and really knew how to throw some words and really knew how to um, at sometimes throw other things as well. And in those moments, I know my mom got so frustrated that she's like, I can't keep making these meat. So she got through, you know how, women, you know how you guys are, right? Like, you are, when you're angry, there is no, there's no better private investigator than an angry mama or an angry wife. And uh, she found out where he was. And her desire was to go and um, not to, you know, how dare you, but to say, um, I need help. You got one who's trying to go to college and play baseball, and you got one who's trying to, you know, be a young woman and everything else. We, we need help. And she finds out the place he is and sees him, and he's thinner than he's ever been. Looked like he was caving in on himself, and that's what she comes back and she tells me. And so that's the only image I have of this guy. And there's this one Sunday I made it a habit while I was in college to, to come back and visit my grandparents who were the heroes of my life, man. I would not be here if it had not been for uh, the, the, the image and likeness of Jesus that I saw lived out in their life and how they welcomed me in. And my granddad, man, he is still to this day my hero and um, so honored by God that I could come back to Georgia and be your lead pastor so that I could be close to them. Um, I was over at their house, just eating. Just good southern food. Got out of the cafeteria. You know how college cafeteria food is just absolutely terrible. So every Sunday I made a habit to come home and get fried pork chops, fried okra, mashed potatoes. I'm sorry if I'm making you guys hungry. Uh, but I'm, I made a point to be at their house every single Sunday. So I'm there. And this particular Sunday, like, I see a different car in the driveway. 
when I pull up. It's my dad. Those are his parents. And he doesn't come out, doesn't eat lunch with us. He spends the most of the time while we're out there eating um, in, in, in a room, just kind of tucked back, doesn't come out. And I know, you know now on that side of things, it was because of shame, it was because of fear, it was because of guilt and everything that he was feeling. And uh, a lot of those emotions are welling up in me, like I know he's here. But at this point in my life, I had begun to process through some aspects of this verse. As I'm there at the house, I know he's in there. This is the point that God had got me to. There's a passage I want to show you, and I want to walk you through how I walk through this. So the passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. That had happened in my life. I was in Christ. I was a new creation. The things that I used to do, I'd stopped doing. God was doing a work in my life. This kid who said, I just want to go play baseball, and, you know, and after that, we'll see what happens, was saying, I want to follow Christ. I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender everything to him. I'll go wherever you send me. I was a new creation. The old was gone. The new was here. Verse 18, all of that was from God. 100% believe that. He's a heavenly father who, next, next words, reconciled me to himself through Christ. He said, I'm pursuing you because of my son. You are now adopted into this family. Then it says he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. And even that part, I was like, yes. Heck, that awesome. I, I want to, every kid who, uh, most every kid who grows up in the same household I, grows up, I grew up in doesn't, doesn't have what happened in my life happen to them. They, they repeat the cycle and they become the same one and the tree continues to bear bad fruit. But I said, God's committing me to the ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to go out and I'm going to spend my whole life connecting people back to a loving God. Then verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And that's the part I had a really hard time with. See, it was really easy as a, a young, fired up Christian to go, I can't wait, I'm excited, I'm vibrant, I'm willing to ready and ready to go to reconcile the world to God that they've sinned against. But it was a whole different ball game to say, I'm ready and willing and fired up about reconciling the world. No, wait, a dad who didn't just sin against God, but sin against me. See, all those other metaphorical people I was going to be used by Jesus to save hadn't sinned against me, hadn't let me down, hadn't walked out, hadn't been the cause and the root of the rejection and the anger I felt. So it's a whole different ballgame when it becomes the one person you've got to forgive, not these medical, metaphorical people that you just as a Christian get to go out and witness to and save and everything else. When Jesus starts asking you to forgive the person who's not just sinned against him but has sinned against you, whew, because you do what this verse had. He says, God didn't count your sins against you, but most of us in the room, for the people who have really hurt us, we counted them against them. We've counted them up. We know. I had a list of all the reasons I should hate his guts. You weren't here for this. You weren't here for this. I watched mom do this. I had people coming into my house. I'm like, who, who are you? Like, all of these things. I had a list of things I was holding against him. And I was perfectly fine holding those things against him. I got in my Toyota Camry after dinner, hugged and kissed my grandma and my granddad goodbye, and I start heading out. And something, I don't know how to explain it other than the Holy Spirit of Jesus, stops me. I don't make it a mile away from their house before the wave of emotion starts. I'm just broken, tears just snotty in a Toyota Camry. Man, I don't, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Um, it's good. I don't know. Um, it's bad. 
And what's going on in my heart is the welling up of thankfulness and gratitude to my grandparents. Because what was going on in my heart was even if he stays dead to me, I've got them. I'll be all right. I've got them and I've got Jesus. Things will be all right. And I walk in the house and I just, I walk in just crying. And my grandparents, I don't, they probably hadn't seen me cry since I was um, little, little. Um, walk in crying, hug my grandma, hug my granddad. And I just tell them, I'm so thankful for you guys. I, just, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. And my grandma, she looks up from her chair and she says, Tramp, your dad needs to know you love him. I'm, at that moment, I've never been more mad at my grandma. Like, how are you going to completely undermine this emotional moment of me being thankful for you and telling me to go forgive this guy? How are you, what, what? Isn't that just like the Holy Spirit to say, here's your motives, here's mine, let's dance. And everything in me, guys, that wanted to uh, look my grandma now and go, no, I'm, I'm good. And listen, everything in us that wants to, like, and some of you have been here in this situation where there are different levels of relationships. There's parents and there's kids. And when we look at that relationship, we think, parent leads the way to the kid and there's a lot of our relationships man where there's there's sins or there's things that's happened against us and we think well that person is the boss the boss should should ask forgiveness to the employee that person is the pastor the pastor should ask forgiveness to the parishioner that person is is the husband they should ask forgiveness for the wife we look at these roles and we see we rank everybody out and depending on where we fall on that scale of rank we think that's the person who should be the one who reconciles and leads that way of reconciliation and in this moment, I, every reason, I'm going, he's the dad. I haven't screwed up in this. Why do I have to bleed the way in this? And so, I don't know, against my head, I follow my heart that I believe was beginning to beat in rhythm with Jesus. I believe if I walked out of that room, arrhythmia would have happened. I've been out of rhythm with Jesus. I don't know what the rest of my life, what the rest of my ministry, what the rest of my family, what the rest of my fatherhood would have looked like had I chosen to stay bitter and broken. I remember I get up and I walk into the living room. I still remember a Falcons game was on. Um, he was watching the Falcons game, kind of heads down. Uh, uh, the, the only glow in the living room, like it was, all the lights were off, but the only glow was kind of the TV coming back on him. And I walk in and I, his head perks up and he sees me and his head goes back down. I walk all the way over to him and his head, once I get closer, his head looks up at me. And I lean down, I hug his neck, I look him in the eyes and I say, Dad, I love you. And I forgive you. Those two sentences. And I get up and I leave. And until I got to this passage this week, I didn't know what God was doing through me in those moments. Because in between this week and that 
moment of walking in saying, Dad, I love you and I forgive you. Six months passed and I got this call coming into college and my dad calls me and says, hey, Trent, and at that point, like flip phones, y'all remember those? Flip phone. I look at it and you could see who was calling you on the cover of the phone and you could choose whether or not you want to flip open or not. Y'all remember them? Bill Dodd, you still got a flip phone. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> oh, man. And at that point, when his number showed up on my phone, it didn't say dad. It said Perry. And everything in me, I answered that phone because I thought there's still hope he can be my dad. I flipped it open. What you got? Hey, I want you to know things are changing, and you're not going to hear from me for a while, which, again, the smart aleck cynic in my head is going, what else is new? Um, he says, I'm going, I'm going to rehab in, in Dahlonega, and I'm going to be there for the uh, rest of the year. And I just want you to know things are changing. Um, God is changing some stuff in my life. And God began to use um, my dad in some amazing ways to become clean and sober, and he spent the rest of his life here on earth clean and sober. And then he got cancer a few years ago. And I remember sitting at the hospital in Birmingham, uh, UAB hospital, sitting in the hospital with him in, in UAB hospital in Birmingham as he's getting ready to have his liver, his gall, or, or his uh, bladder, his gallbladder, and his appendix removed because they're just ridden with cancer. And I'm, I'm listening to him tell his story to a stranger, essentially. He begins to tell the story of the very same moment in the story that I talked to you about. He tells this lady, I used to be strung out, strung, strung out on drugs and alcohol, and um, my son, who I had abandoned, came and told me he forgave me, and I didn't stop using after that. I probably got a little worse, but the more I, this is him telling the story, the more I used, the more I heard his voice in my ear saying, I love you and I forgive you, I love you and I forgive you. Every time the, the, the cloud of, of ketamine or the cloud of, of whatever narcotic it was that was in his brain began to fade out, the voice of his son, which I now know is the voice of his father, was saying, I love you and I forgive you. And what was happening in that verse, or what was happening in that moment, was what was happening in this verse. Look at Ephesians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 20, same passage we were just on. Verse 20 says this. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though. He said, you wonder what that means? Here's what it means. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. So what does bitterness lead to? Brokenness. Forgiveness leads healing. So up until this week, I didn't realize that God, in that moment, to a lost, broken, and desperate man strung out on alcohol and drugs, God had already been, I believe wholeheartedly, God had been making his appeal. And I'm not saying my appeal to, to my dad was better than God's appeal to my dad. What I'm saying is God's appeal to my dad was my appeal to my dad because that's how he works with his people. He says, you are ambassadors of reconciliation. That's not our reconciliation human to human. That's all collectively our reconciliation as broken, messed up humans to a God. And what's so wild about God is he says, I want to actually use other broken, messed up humans to be a part of that reconciliation process. So my saying, I love you and I forgive you, was 100% God's appeal through me. And it worked. 
because despite everything that I wanted to do, God said, okay, here. Again, I'm not a hero in this. There's plenty of other things where I've, I've definitely withheld the forgiveness and I've felt the brokenness. But one of the things I've learned about bitterness is bitterness is like drinking poison yourself and hoping the other person dies because of it. You're only hurting yourself. So that's my story. That's what I found forgiveness lead to. So today I want to end by reminding you of a story that Jesus told. He told it when one of his boys came to him. This guy was named Peter. Peter had a knack for putting his foot in his mouth. He comes to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, how many times have we got to forgive people? And he, again, Peter, he wanted to be the you know, teacher's pet a lot of times, wanted to be the boy who got that gold star. Um, you have one of those kids in your life too. Um, he says, how many times do we forgive? Seven? And like, that's how he asked it. Like, Seven? Like, di- like I'm, o- I'm overachieving here. Like the Levitical law, do- I mean, G- he-, he-, he adds three. He puts those together and then he goes one above. He says, seven, right? Seven, that's right. Jesus goes, no, Peter, seven times 70 which is his way of saying infinity. Peter, we don't ever stop forgiving. Do you realize how many times in the short few years I've been here, I've had to forgive your tail? I had to pull you up out of that water? Do you understand what, what, what's happening here, Peter? And then he tells this parable. It's, it's in Matthew, Matthew 15. I, I want you to go back and read it. It's Matthew 15, amazing parable. Ma- or Matthew 18, sorry. Matthew 18, it's a parable of the unmerciful, un- unmerciful servant. And he tells a story about this king who had a servant who owed him a ton of money money that he could never pay back. And the king says, I'm gonna go take everything that's yours and throw you into jail because you can't pay this back. And the guy falls down on his knees, begins to beg the king, no, 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 please, 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 please don't let this happen. Please don't let this happen. The king has mercy on the servant, forgives him. That servant goes out, goes on his jolly way. He's rocking and rolling. He's just been forgiven of all those debts. And then he, again, who'd been working and working and working, he remembers one of his old buddies from a long way back. And he sees him, and he still owes him about 30 bucks. He says, where's my money? You owe me. Pay this back. And if you don't, I'm going to... And he begins to kind of strong arm this guy. One of the king's other servants see this happening and goes and tells the king, and infuriates the king to no end. This is what happened. It says, then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all your debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Listen, it's so crazy how all this connects back. In anger, Jesus is alluding to his father God's righteous anger here. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay, underline these words, pay back all he owed. Then this is how Jesus ended it. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister, underline these words, from your heart. So I want to end today with some questions so you can go out and list some of this out. First question is this. Who am I angry with? Who is it, guys? Who are you angry with? Next question. Who is angry with you? Which is fascinating in this. Like, 
Listen to how Jesus sets up his story in Matthew 5 when he begins to talk about anger and murder. He doesn't talk about the, he doesn't say, hey, think about that person who has something, or you ha- think about that person who did you wrong. In both the illustrations that Jesus uses, he is implying that you should first focus on the fact that there may be somebody out there who you've done something wrong to. That's why in both of those passages, he doesn't say, hey, think about that person who hurt you. No, he says, it starts with the man in the mirror. Think about the person who you may have hurt. And so who is that? Who's the person that maybe you kind of swept some stuff on the rug or you said, ah, they'll get over it. Or they know I was just kidding. Or they know my heart. And you've watched distance happen. You need to ask for forgiveness. Next one, this is a big one. Why am I angry? Why? Why are you angry? It's probably because of what we read a little earlier. You were looking for a man. You were looking for a woman. You were looking for a job. You were looking for a relationship. A certain neighborhood, a car. Somebody's approval. To give you something or to be somebody that only God can be for you. But you've got to pinpoint that. Why are you angry? And the last one is this. What's keeping me from forgiving as Christ has forgiven me? See, we won't pay back. The truth is, guys, Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it all for us. And because he's paid it all for us, now we can live this life knowing they don't ever have to pay me back for what they took from me. Every payment that could ever be paid for the things that really matter, the things that are really life and death in this life, which is our sin and our unrighteousness, those things have been paid for on the cross. And as we here in a second celebrate communion, hold that bread, hold that juice. And sink into the deep, life-changing reality that you don't deserve anything. But you have been given everything in Christ. And because you've been given everything in him, the payback that you think they owe you is worthless compared to the riches of being connected and knowing him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today, what you're doing, who you are. I pray that you pull us out of a place of um, desperation and fear and bring us into a place of love and grace. Bring us to a place where we can forgive those who have hurt us. Remove all the bitter roots. Pull them up. Cut them out. Allow our lives to be back things that bear your fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and gentleness, and long-suffering. In your name.